Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm really excited about this topic today because it's one that touches the lives of so many people who are listening to us and so many people who have concerns and fear of being diagnosed with dementia. We're going to be talking about the new face of Alzheimer's, early stage patients who just don't want to surrender. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is with us. Carol's executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She has a master's degree in social gerontology, over 25, nearly 30 years experience in the field of aging or caregiving. She was one of Next Avenue's top 50 influencers on aging, and it's no secret because she's talked about it on Caregiver SOS on air. She has had personal family experience with Alzheimer's disease. And Carol, this is an exciting opportunity. Well, it is. And, you know, the, the, the early stage patient, uh, my mother, as a lot of people know, did have Alzheimer's disease. And when she was in the early stages, she kept telling me, I just want to meet people like me. I just want to spend time with others who are like me and have someone tell us, what do we need to do to keep going? What do we need to do to maintain as much as we can? How come, you know, there's nothing out there for me? Uh, which at the time was really, really true, and that's changing, which is why I'm so thrilled to have Rebecca Chop join us today. Well, Dr. Chop is a widely published author, editor, academic in the fields of education, philosophy, religion, and feminism. She served as the 18th and first female chancellor of the University of Denver, was additionally president of Swarthmore College and Colgate University, where I spent some incredible years. She served as provost and executive vice president for academic affairs at Emory University, and I could take this whole program listing her incredible credentials. More importantly now, Dr. Chop is currently working on a book entitled Not Your Grandmother's Alzheimer's, Refusing to Surrender and Living Well in the Early Stages of Alzheimer's Disease. And Dr. Chop, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And this topic is uh, so important to me. We need to help everybody learn what about early diagnosis and all that they can do to keep healthy, prolong the quality of their life. I read about uh, when you were first diagnosed and were first told what that diagnosis was and uh, how that impacted your life. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, you know, mine uh, is a, a story of a wonderful primary care physician, and I hope more and more follow her lead in that she picked up some on some things in my uh, annual physical. I was sleeping a lot more. I'd gotten lost on the way to her office only once did I ever get lost like that. But there had been other things. I hadn't put the two and two together. I probably didn't want to put the two and two together, but I also didn't know enough to put it together. So she caught up, went, stood by me as I went through four months of diagnoses. I was uh, in the midst of a fantastic strategic plan at DU 
We were building buildings. We were doing great student programming. And all of a sudden, I got this news that I had Alzheimer's. Um, Early stages. My grandmothers both had Alzheimer's. My mother had Alzheimer's. So I suppose it shouldn't have came as a total surprise, but it came as a total and devastating shock. And one thing all, all the doctors said was that I needed to remove the stress. So I chose to step down. I uh, had not spent enough time with my family, and I couldn't stand the thought in that particular position of making mistakes. Now, even four or five years later, many employees are willing to accommodate people with Alzheimer's, and rightly so, because one can have so many, if they're fortunate, healthy years left. You turned well, your life you know, upside having down. Your, Go ahead, Carol. Well, I was just going to say, having uh, Dr. Chop's voice, you know, it's a voice we didn't hear in the past, right? And you were talking about, I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, and living with dementia was a foreign concept. Uh, and now the most powerful voices and the voices for, for change and improving how we think about life with Alzheimer's, you know, who better to get that information from than someone who is making decisions, living their life, uh, and has Alzheimer's. Well, I think, you and know, so, Dr. Chop, wait, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, I think you're so right. You know, until uh, fairly recently, most people didn't get it diagnosed until they were in the middle to late stages. And at that point, you can't really do what I'm doing, which is talking, writing a book, advocating. But there are more and more of us who are getting these early diagnoses. And with the soon, I think, to be accepted biomarkers and maybe other diagnostic tools, there will be tons more people who get diagnosed in the early stages or even before, 20 years maybe before some of the signs are showing now, those well, who are did listening, you to, hesitate. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Sorry. Now, I was going to say those who are listening to you now, uh, th- there's no way to know what your diagnosis is other than you're telling us. Are, are there days you wake up and say, you know, maybe they're wrong. Maybe I don't have Alzheimer's. No, you know, there's not for me because I uh, was fortunate enough, enough that Kaiser, my health care insurance plan, was willing to pay for an amyloid PET scan. Uh, those are hard to come by because they're expensive. Right. Um, they're fairly definitive. And then a wonderful neurologist showed me that PET scan. And once I saw uh, the plaques and towels tangles in my brain, I, I'm pretty willing to accept it. How did you feel when you yeah, saw and I that? Can re- I'm sorry, Carol. I I had two different neurologists. Well, actually, I had three. I went out of network. The first one basically said, you have Alzheimer's. You're going to not be able to feed yourself in three or four years. I wanted a second opinion. I went out of network and then went back into network and found this wonderful woman. And, you know, she showed me the brain scan. She told me what could happen. She didn't promise me that I could prolong my life or prolong the quality of my life. But she said I had a chance to do it. 
And she said it with love and caring. So though I was shocked and upset and, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm an academic. <laughs> I, I joke about being a brain with a body. I mean, I made my living through my brain so that the scariest thing in the world is to know I'm going to be a body without a brain. But compassionate care, that neurologist changed, I think, my uh, overall reaction, not only in terms of doing things to promote my health, but when when you have bad news to deliver delivered to you, it is better to have someone holding your hand and speaking in love. Well, I'm I'm curious if initially, if you didn't want to tell anybody, were you afraid people were going to treat you differently, and you didn't want that to happen? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's such a good point. I I actually didn't, when I announced that I had to step down, I didn't use the word Alzheimer's. I said complex neurological disorder, and please don't ask me questions. <laughs> That's what I said in the official announcement. I told uh, some people, I told my board, you know, my the people who hired and fired me, uh, but they didn't have to fire me. I had to step down. Uh And I told friends, but I couldn't use the word Alzheimer's. In part, I had the stigma that I think the culture carries and that so many people have. That stigma is that Alzheimer's is a binary kind of thing, right? It's like, oh, you're healthy. And then you get the disease. And then, you know, you're like my grandmother, who was one of those woman in the nursing home tied to her chair, looking out empty into space. So I couldn't stand for people to treat me with that stigma. But again, it was also in me. I think that stigma is starting to change, but it is a very deep stigma in our society. Well, it it is, and it probably perpetuates the lack of diagnosis. In the early stages, the not wanting to know, the not wanting to to see, um, and and you know, in my own studies, uh, looking at the lifespan of someone with Alzheimer's, and decades ago we were saying twenty, thirty years, without acknowledging that twenty or thirty years was a time that was mild symptoms, that there was a lot of daylight um, before the symptoms became. So disruptive, um, and not everybody even reached those because, as as you mentioned, everybody is unique. And so, Dr. Chop, as as you go on your path, it's not going to be like my mother's path, um, which was fairly short. And, you know, I yeah, I think that she um, did pretty well along the way, and she never got to those late stages. Mm. Uh, and so we did. I, she always knew who I was. Maybe not my name, but she certainly knew I was her daughter, and she certainly had a smile on her face. Nice. There, you know, I have two friends now whose husbands have recently gone into memory care, and uh, boy, even even these two who've basically been diagnosed about the same time, their their stories are so different. Everyone is everyone is totally different, and as you you know probably better than I. Alzheimer's, we don't know the cause of it. We don't know if it's really one disease. 
I have a friend who calls it a dystopian of symptoms. Uh, we know that certain things are common with Alzheimer's, the plight, the plagues and the towels, and that there is a kind of spectrum or almost timeline or progression. But that's about all we know. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. We're talking with Dr. Rebecca Chop, a very distinguished career in education, president of a number of universities, and her most recent post as provost at uh, Denver University. She is the new face of Alzheimer's, early-stage dementia, a patient whose PCP was able to lead her on this path to help her understand what was happening. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about all this right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. So pleased you were sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS on air. All of our programs are available on podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I would hope that you would pass along this show in particular to folks who are very interested in early stage dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and a patient who is with us today who is speaking out and talking about her own experience. She's Dr. Rebecca Chop, a former university president, a provost who has had extensive experience in the field now of talking about her disease, and she's writing a book on it. And one of the things, Dr. Chop, I want to come back to, and Carol Zernio really touched on it, and that is early diagnosis and the hesitancy, perhaps, number one, on patients wanting to know it's what they have, and primary care physicians hesitant to make that diagnosis. Yeah, it's so true. You know, after my diagnosis by that got started by this brilliant primary care physician who wasn't scared of talking to me about it, I've, I've had so many friends go into their primary care uh, physician and ask for the test, and it's been refused. And I've heard so many stories of primary, primary care physicians say, well, there's nothing we can do. Why should we run the test? But there are things now that we know we can do. You know, and, and likewise, patients. I was interviewed um, on a radio talk show, and the interviewer said, I don't know that I'd want to know because there's nothing we can do. You know, again, that goes back to the stigma, the stigma that you're healthy, and then somehow you get that diagnosis, and by the time you walk out of your doctor's office, you're unable to button your shirt or feed yourself or whatever. But now we know there are things we can do. Um, there are some medications approved that treat some of the symptoms in some of the people. There's going to be more and more of those medications. 
And then there is lifestyle intervention. And this is proving exceedingly healthy for many people. I myself think eventually, like heart disease, it will be a combination of drugs and lifestyle intervention, diet, exercise, creativity to uh, stretch the brain to create neuroplasticity, intellectual engagement, social engagement. These things seem to work together to literally cause some changes in the brain that help prolong the quality of life. Well, I was fascinated that you made a decision. I heard you say you wanted to reduce the stress in your life. Um, And that's, a lot of people don't realize how damaging stress is. And I must admit, I hadn't thought about stress related to the person living with Alzheimer's other than, um, you know, we see that sometimes with, you know, behavior issues. Uh, but that removing that stress from the re- environment and, and even removing the stress in an early stage to maximize everything that you have and give you time to, to really focus and, and breathe and, and choose, you know, your path is I, very refreshing. I think that um, stress is known, uh, some stress can be healthy, uh, but too much stress causes inflammation or intensifies the inflammation in the brain. And we know that the inflammation in the brain is part of what creates these shorthand layperson form, these towels and these plaques and the problems. So, you know, not everybody can do what I did. We were fortunate that uh, we had both worked and we were near retirement age. But even people who need to keep on working can, again, get accommodations in the workplace. They can try to make sure the, my phrase is the pleasures outweigh the pressure pressures of the work stress. They can take on spirituality, meditation, creativity, anything to keep that stress minimized. And do the provisions of the Americans with Disability Act cover folks with Alzheimer's? We believe so. We being organizations like uh, the, I co-founded Voices of Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Association and others. Um, There are now many employers working to make accommodations. So I don't think there have been sufficient court cases yet to give a clear answer, but there But at least according to the lawyers and what we are seeing employers do, it appears that, yes, it has to it has to cover it just like it covers all other diseases. What would some of the accommodations in the workplace be? Okay, so let's say you're a uh, manager in a facilities plant and you're overseeing all the facilities. You can no longer handle the stress uh, and the multitasking and the complexity, but that doesn't mean you couldn't oversee the um, uh, uh, heating and air conditioning or that you couldn't work in that. Uh, Let's say you're an executive administrative assistant and you're dealing with the chancellor's crazy calendar and everybody calling in and either praising or debating the school and all this stuff, but you might be able just 
uh, to step a little bit to the side and be an administrative assistant or even a receptionist. So you you can create a different job. Now, you know, I, I don't know how the salary works and all in that, but we are seeing uh, uh, employers starting to do that a lot to help accommodate people with Alzheimer's. Well, see, now so far you've challenged the healthcare community for primary care and physicians not to be afraid to diagnose. You challenged <laughs> corporate America to accommodate persons living with Alzheimer's. Who else would you like to talk to? Oh, I'd love to talk to Medicare. <laughs> okay. Why? So to the government, to the overseeing uh, you know, of what they cover. <laughs> yeah, you know, the FDA has approved uh uh, fully one drug and now almost fully and probably will approve a second drug that treats the symptoms and delays by up to two years the progression of the symptoms. But Medicare had uh, decided not to approve it, not to approve payment. Now they've just come out with this new kind of bureaucratic finagling where if you're in a city and your doctor agrees to a registry, you might get it, but that's not going to help many people. It's certainly not going to help me. So um, I think that's one thing. Medicare needs to treat this disease as it treats all other diseases. This is the first time in history that Medicare has refused to fund a drug that the FDA has approved. I'd also like Medicare to fund the amyloid uh, PET scans like I was fortunate to have. Um, I think right now they generally maybe fund one in a lifetime, but uh, doctors will hold off until somebody's 85 or 90. And when you really need that is in the early stages. It doesn't have as much value. Yeah. Correct. If, if you know somebody's you can watch them and say, oh, yeah, they've got a neurological disorder that probably don't need a PET scan. Huh. As you're yeah. working on your book, uh, give us a sense of how you're doing this. Uh, working on my book? Yes. Well, you know, uh, my husband and I just had a talk about this because <laughs> I've just finished the text and now it's ready to go to uh, the press. Um so a lot of the research shows a massive amount of exercise helps. So I work out, I adopted a puppy, I take him out, then I work out, and then I would come home and write for two or three hours because that helps concentration. And then I have an editor, a fellow who's been with me at Swarthmore and then at DU, who kindly edited the book. If I had had to do my own editing, I think that would have been impossible. 25 years ago, I think I could have done it. Uh, but that's how I did it, just two or three hours a day. And and my son, who asked me to do the book, uh, said, make it one that he can read. So this is <laughs> not a book that's 8,000 footnotes and 10 pages. This is mainly my own story combined with the research I've done, similar to the research um, that y'all have done. And when well, can we expect it? Take to see it. Yeah, I say, when do we get to see the book? Probably nine months. Takes a long time for presses to get it together. <laughs> you know, they have so many other books at the same time, and their profit margins are pretty slim these days. Oh, yes, yes. Now, we've got about a minute left, and, and before we say goodbye to you, uh, share with us your thoughts about, 
as you speak out, uh, the kind of response you're getting from the public? People are very hungry to know this. They're hungry to be able to know the facts put in layperson's terms. Um, it's very hard for a trained scientist to talk in the way I can, but a trained scientist checks everything I say. And they're very hungry to know about the lifestyle interventions that they can do. And they're very hungry to hear my message of live with joy. My book ends with a little story. I won't tell the story, but the final line is don't let anybody steal your joy. That's a good point. Well, we are so pleased that you were able to come on and talk with us. And uh, we hope to have a chance to do that again soon. Uh, When the book comes out, perhaps we can get you back on. Love to. We'll put that on top of Christy Romero's list, our producer. Okay. Well, it's been great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and with the public to get this important information out that we all are committed to. Dr. Rebecca Chop is truly an honor for us to have a chance to talk with you. And we thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, and your experience. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you again soon right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.